Hi, I'm blah, and I do blah. <laughs> Dang it! You're so literal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I am. So you asked me before we started hitting record, you asked me to say, I am blah, and I do blah. And my mind immediately went to, um, like, there's so many ways to answer that question. Um, obviously, I can say, I am Noah Aronson, and I do Jewish music. But I could also just say, like, I am a human being, and I do breathing. You know, I can say, I am experiencing excitement in this moment, and I am moving my body with that excitement. You know, there's so many different ways that I, I think what, what, what one says after the words I am is really telling. Uh, and it's like really definitive and defining of their identity. Like I am a doctor, I am a rabbi, I am a mother, you know, whatever those things are tends to lop onto our egos in a way. And so I can say, I am Noah Aronson, which would say, okay, that's my family name and attached to my parents and their parents before them. Or I can say, I'm Noah, which is more of like a, okay, I am your friend. I'm someone who knows you well, and we've worked together. Or I could just say, I am, and then stop right there. And now I just am saying an expression of just, I am experiencing life in this moment. Can I ask, when you think about the fact that when we say I am and then something comes after that, do you think a lot of times whatever comes after that, I generally think it's um, it's like a default answer. The person is trying to anticipate, what are you asking me and what do you want me to say to you? It's kind of mm. like when you ask someone, how are you feeling? And you go, I'm fine. Right. And chances are it's much deeper than that. But we right. just say, I'm fine. Do you think most people stop and process or that the question invites processing? What is this person asking? What do I want to say? Who am I? Right. I, it's, um, I, I don't know if I could speak for most people, but I do think about that a lot in terms of the thing that comes after I am. Um, and like, so when you say I am fine, uh, I think like a more, um, like a nuanced way of, of approaching it, like obviously fine is not a, is not a very eloquent, you know, expression of emotion, but like, you could right. say like, I am experiencing joy in this moment, you know? I am experiencing sadness or grief. I am experiencing this moment as, as this or that. And I, I think that then it, it kind of invites in a more dynamic conversation. But yeah, I think the average person is probably just trying to just kind of get through the conversation quickly and, and not go in so in, in depth so quickly. But Okay, the fact that you started out with this question and it felt the way you thought about the question felt very embodied and very in this moment, thinking about how my body feels, how, how what kind of emotions are going through, how do I want to how do I want to process this question? I met you years ago, and so again, you were doing the music thing, and the one thing that that I thought was different about you when you came to the synagogue and participated in the music was you did seem very in the moment with people. And a lot of musicians also come to, I've seen them at all kinds of houses of worship, and they are excellent musicians. And of course, you are an excellent musician. But I think a lot of times the musicians struggle with balancing musicianship and wanting people to have a good musical experience and what it means to be a a prayer leader and be be there with the people leading them in communal prayer and I just thought at that time, I thought you did a nice thing balancing that. But then in all the work I've seen after, I've seen even more thinking about your body and your place and your context. So could you tell me in the years I saw you at 
congregation B'nai Yehuda many years ago. But in the in the output I've seen from you in videos and podcasts and the kinds of things you're talking about, it doesn't seem now just music and spirituality. It also does seem wrapped up in what you're talking about, which is awareness of where I am right now in this moment, the body. Have you like, has body become a big focus for you? Yeah, I, I have, um, I've discovered in my own spiritual practice that like, you know, I think singing and music got me into a conversation of spirituality. Um, but then I think that movement, exercise, dance, breath, um, like has expanded that expression of, of like my connection to whatever is bigger than myself. Um, and it allows me to more deeply get into my, myself, um, and my self-reflection. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've definitely put a lot of time and thought into not only just the singing and the music part, but also just what's happening in, in my body in that moment. Um, and I, that's helped me throughout all of my kind of self self reflection journey, the spiritual journey, whatever we want to call it. Um, and I think you mentioned also just about like prayer leadership and prayer moments. I'm, I'm making less and less, I think of a distinction between like, okay, this is a moment of prayer versus this is a moment that I'm sitting with kids on the floor, just singing songs. Like it doesn't matter if we've designated this time as, okay, now we're praying. And this time is now we're just hanging out. Like it's all, it's all happening all the time. Uh, and so like, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't need to be that like, okay, now I'm standing in front of the community and this is my role in this moment to be this. It's like, I'm always this and I'm always a breathing body uh, or a spirit inside a breathing body. And I am um, just trying in every moment to be as, as present as I can with others and with the community. But do you, so I don't know, do you feel like, um, um, an outsider in that view, because my impression when I go out into the regular world and the regular world is at the store and the regular world is at schools and the regular world is also at synagogue where, again, people are very much they understand their roles and you can see a rabbi's this way when the rabbi's just chatting with someone. And then when they go on, there is like a persona, there's a role they're fulfilling. And I resonate with what you're talking about, which is finding ways as you move through your journey in life, how can I be more myself in all these places and find out who I really am so that I'm the same person in all the places? How do you balance that against these are the expectations of what we want you to do? And you can certainly see how other people feel like they very much have to balance. I need to be this way here and this way here and this way here. Yeah, it's it's very hard. I think, like I said in the beginning, it's um, anything that is like an identifier on our ego um, is going to ha leave an imprint, um, whether it's rabbi, doctor, mother, whatever, whatever those um, identifiers are. Uh, and, and I think the more things we add on, the more easily it is to lose like that connection to, to, tr to true self and true, like, like who, who I truly am. Um, and it, but it's hard. It's hard for people in in roles of leadership, uh, and I and I do see the the value in, um, you know, in there being some sort of distinction between, um, you know, when when people come to a, a rabbi's office and and they they're looking for um, that rabbi to fill a certain role, or they go to a doctor's office and they the, the the doctor has a certain role. So there is a an important boundary there. Um, and I was actually in rabbinical school. 
uh, for two years at one point, and and I decided to leave rabbinical school. And one of the reasons, not all of the reasons, but one of the reasons was that I really just wanted to interact as Noah being Noah. Like I didn't want to be Rabbi Noah or I want I didn't want there to be a distinction like now I have to serve this role and and do whatever someone else expects of me. I just wanted to be me expressing whatever was, you know, was needing to come through in that moment. Um and I was feeling a little bit of like that the boundaries were getting thicker and thicker as I kept going through school and I and I wasn't wanting that sort of distinction. Would you, that kind of perfectly leads me to the question I was going to use to kick off, but then this whole discussion was way more interesting than the opening question. And the kind of the big reason I wanted to talk to you is I don't think I've ever heard like your origin story. How did you, when I met you, how did you wind up doing, you know, going synagogue to synagogue, doing music? What was your journey that led you to that point? And then what, as you've said now, you did experimentation with, I'm going to study deeper with Judaism. I'm considering a, you know, a, a role in the rabbinate and then decide that wasn't for you. What, is the, what does that whole journey look like if you describe yeah. it? Yeah. Um, well, obviously all of our journeys start, you know, they, you can, one, one could, one could say it starts in birth and then others can say it starts before we were even born, but like they're all of the, I think the various different elements of my upbringing and my family um, are kind of what led me in the direction um, to choose the path that I, I had chosen. And in some ways it was the path was like chosen for me in, because of the relationship that I had with, with everything. So my, my father, I, I grew up in New Jersey. My father was a cantor in a synagogue in New Jersey. Um, and so, uh, and then for, for the listeners who don't know what a cantor is, the cantor is a clergy person in a, in a congregation in a Jewish community that is um, mostly focuses on the role of music uh, in spiritual life. And, and so I kind of grew up with a father who was a musician and a singer and uh, an artist in, in many ways, um, but also a community leader. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in synagogue. I went to a school called Solomon Schechter Day School, which is like a Jewish uh, day school where we learn secular and Jewish studies simultaneously. Uh, and so I went through that through through my, my 12 years of, of you know primary education. Um, all the while I was uh, I was also discovering my my love of music and movement and dance um, from an early age. I started playing piano when I was around seven or eight years old. My dad would play at the piano in our living room and I would just look at him with such awe. I was so I was so giddy. I'm like, how do you do that? You have to show me. And so he would sit me down and he would teach me a thing and and then I would learn it. And then I would the next day he would teach me a little bit more. And I was like a voracious learner uh, when it came to music. I, I just like ate it all up and I played every single day of my childhood. Um, and after a couple of years of that, you know, I started taking uh, lessons because my dad also had a job and a life. He couldn't be my, 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 my piano teacher anymore, but I was, I was starting to kind of advance past also where he was able to teach me. So I, he had me kind of take classical piano lessons and things like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, in my early life, you know, music was driving a lot and uh, I was playing piano for hours every day. I also learned from an early age that I loved to dance and to move. Uh, and so I um, pursued theater for a bit when I was uh, in high school. Uh, it was, I was a really shy child. I didn't speak um, a lot. I didn't use my words to express. And so music kind of became the place where I kind of express my emotions more. Um, 
And it took a lot of convincing actually to get me to go on stage and try theater. But once I, once I did it and got over that fear, um, I realized I loved being on stage and performing and, um, and singing and dancing and kind of entertaining in that way. Um, and then I went to college, um, first at a place called Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania. And then I transferred to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, um, where I continued to study piano and uh, jazz composition. And while I was at the um, the at, at school, I, I took a part-time job at a synagogue in, uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, mm-hmm. called Temple Beth Elohim. And the cantor there, a woman named Cantor Jody Suffren, uh, she actually, it just so happened that um, when she was in cantorial school um, in the early 80s, my father was a teacher at that school. He was going in and teaching some classes at the cantorial school. And so she was a student in his class. Uh, and oh, so geez. when I came to do the part-time job, she kind of took me under her wing and she was very, like, uh, became like a mentor to me. Um, and um, over over time, uh, she started encouraging me to write to write music for the synagogue, which I had never really considered doing. Um but uh, I, the, the religious school director at the time uh, decided to send me to a place called Havana Shira, which is like a um, song leaders, a Jewish song leaders uh, like retreat or a workshop. Okay. Um, a lot of guitars. There was so many guitars. <laughs> at the time, I, I, I started playing guitar when I was around 16 years old. Um, but, uh, and, but even so, like guitar wasn't my primary instrument. Piano really was my instrument. Right. Um, but when I got to, to Havana Shira, it was like 200 guitars and everybody's playing the same chords and the same strum <laughs> patterns. And I was like really blown away by, by that. But um, I, I remember like a, a couple things hit me and I was about 21 at the time. Um, a couple things hit me very profoundly um, one was just this sound of 200 or so people all singing together with so much passion and so much love. Um, that was really meaningful to me. Uh, and also um, seeing people like Debbie Friedman and Craig Taubman and Dan Nichols, who I would still say like are those three uh, leaders were um, pivotal. And I, I kind of watched them in their style of leadership. And I was like, there's something in me that was like, I can... I can do that. Like I, I, I saw that, like I had never seen that style of leadership before, before that. Yeah. And I, and there was something that just kind of like lit up within me, especially with Craig Taubman. And I, I just was like, I knew I almost like I could see my future in a way when I went, when I watched him, I'm like, I, I can see myself doing something like that. The way that he and commanded. Is this retrospective thinking back to that moment? Or do you, can you literally, do you think you can no, kind of I, remember being that, Young I remember, kid. yeah, I remember sitting there and he was teaching a, a setting of his Vishamru, uh, which is a prayer, and he said it, he said it to music. And and he was sitting in a small group, there was like 12 of us, and he was just sitting by the, you know, the fireplace, just you know, strumming along, teaching us how to sing the song. And I was like, wow, I I just had this this like out of body experience where I'm like, I will be that one day. I'm gonna be doing that, you know? Um, and so um so yeah, he became like a like, like I had I had him and Dan Nichols especially the like in my mind watching them lead. Um, 
for for years i um i kind of followed them around uh, and i actually wound up being uh, their accompanist for both of them uh, and, and and many other artists jo- josh nelson and um i played for debbie friedman i played for many of the like the big kind of jewish music artists i i became yeah. their pianist and i would go you know go around with them and play with them at uh, different concerts and stuff and um and kind of really watched and learned how they how they were able to kind of command a room and 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 bring people into the experience. Um, and so when I came back from that first year of having a Shira, I was still a student at Berkeley, but I I kind of asked the cantor to take on more responsibility at the synagogue, and so they they were able to like just kind of load me up with lots of different you know teaching opportunities, and I became the Friday night accompanist at the at the synagogue. I I was like teaching bar mitzvah students and Torah cantillation. And uh, I was like in the religious school with them all the ages. Um, I, I would have so much fun with like the kindergartners, first and second graders. They would, it would draw crowds. Like the parents would actually come in from the, you know, instead of like sitting in the lobby, they would come in and they would like, like watch as I would teach these kids music. Cause we were, we were cracking up. We were having so much fun. I just, I, I still to this day, I just like love sitting on the floor with a group of kids, just making them laugh and, and having having fun. Um, and so I realized like a lot of the, my background, like my father being a cantor, my music experiences, my Jewish knowledge, like all kind of were leading me in this direction in a very, um, like, you know, like kind of swimming, swimming with the stream, so to speak. It all felt like, um, it felt aligned to just keep going in that direction. Um, and so, after school, I, I took a full-time job at the synagogue. I, and then I started writing more music. I eventually, um, like pressured the cantor to buy this eight track recorder. Um, like it was like a, a digital recorder where you, you know, everything is, we weren't using the computers yet. It was just like, we we're plugging microphones in and plugging things in. And I, I was able to record a whole album of original music. Uh, and I got the cantor to sing and the, and the kids choir to sing on it. And we got different people to sing and all these new songs that I was writing for the synagogue. Um, and she was just so supportive. Everything, every idea I came in, she, she, she was supportive of the idea. She helped me kind of tweak it and, and like, and ask like, okay, well, what if, what if this, or what if that? And so she was really just like giving me a playground to explore and experiment and, and, um, and so that was uh, like around the 2005, 2006 uh, years. Um, Do you think anyone's vision as they were giving you all this stuff that they did want you, <clears throat> well, you're going to become a cantor or a rabbi? I mean, clearly. I think that there was always that expectation or hope that I would go in that direction. And that was to them like the logical direction. And I think even for me, it, it was like I got to a certain point where I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in this world. Maybe I should go to, you know, become clergy. And so that's when one of the things that prompted me to go to cantorial school or, or rabbinical school rather was to kind of to kind of get that sort of clergy uh, badge, uh, you know, whatever. Um, But um, yeah, my life took me in different directions. Ultimately I, I knew I just, I wanted, I wanted to stay more on the artist side of, of the, of the equation rather than the, the, the clergy person, which is really a, you know, a service, a service job. You're it's, it's a, you're in service to people and to the community. And, um, while I think that's really noble and and beautiful work, I just that wasn't the parts of the work that I was getting moved by, and um, and I so I, I always saw myself more as a composer, a writer, a performer, uh, a teacher, and um, and so 
it didn't make as much sense for me to to continue on that path when I was on it. Um, but um, but yeah, I I think I came to B'nai Yehuda uh, in Kansas City um, in two thousand and. <laughs> 10 or 2011 for the first time um i was actually it was actually funny because they had hired dan nichols to come uh <laughs> to, to to come be there for the weekend and he okay. some, for some reason he had to cancel and so he was looking around for other people uh and he he reached out to someone else and then that other person couldn't do it and so then i was like their third or fourth choice basically <laughs> i was <laughs> i was like a young up and coming you know I, I really hadn't been doing much of that sort of thing yet um, right. and so, uh, art, uh, rabbi art Nematov, he, he gave me a call. I said, okay, can you come? I, I went and we had these beautiful conversations and we, um, you know, we, we explored and talked about like what the future of Jewish music is going to look like, what the, the future of the synagogue life is going to look like, what the, you know, what prayer look can look like in a congregation. And we started these like deep conversations. Uh, and that started a, um, you know, I think it was a, seven or eight year long relationship that um, I would go every year, several times a year. And uh, we would experiment and explore and, and just like, try different types of music, different styles of leadership. Um, and, uh, and he eventually had ideas for how to kind of transform their high holiday experience and the music of the high holidays. So, and so he commissioned me to, to write a bunch of music to, for the, for that experience to kind of re rethink how, how the community was worshiping. Um, and so, um, I think that the trust that that he put in my hands, that Cantor Suffren put in my hands, um, that all these different figures became mentor figures for me to um, kind of play and experiment and explore. Um, so that's kind of really where it got started. Can I ask, so it started with with your, your dad. Did your dad feel more like um, someone who was obsessed and and focused on the lit on the words of the liturgy, or did it feel like it was a musical calling, like a religious musical calling? Did it feel like there were two paths, or like you can't view those as two paths, or like all intertwined? Um, I don't. It's definitely somewhere in the middle there, but I I think my father, um, it, on that spectrum, he was more he leaned more towards the the side of like whatever is good for the community and is not, and he wasn't as a, much of a stickler about the words and the liturgy and the tradition. He was actually a, a big innovator and he really innovated and always, he, he was one of the first people to bring a guitar on the Bima. And he was, oh. he actually, he had the first uh, rock service, rock Shabbat service. Uh, and so he was really an innovator and he was always trying to push, push things forward. Um, and so that was um, the model for him was just like, how do we, how do we make the community lift everybody up and move and push people forward? Um, so I kind of grew up with that sort of um, type of leadership. Uh, and I actually, in, in many ways, I'm a little bit more conservative than my, my dad is and, <laughs> and, and Cantor Suffren uh, also like they, they were more progressive than I was in terms of the yeah. role of music, the, like, like the tradition, the traditions. And I, I'm like a little bit more uh, reserved, I think in, in, in that. And I learned from them just about like that. It's important to push people forward and to move things in a forward direction. 
how do you sit in the world? So I, it's funny. I used to, there was a cantor who used to be at a Benihahuda, and I remember her, her thing about traditional. People say stuff's traditional. They don't really, whether it's tradition or not, they just mean it's the song they were used to when they were a kid. So that's what tradition is. As you have explored Nusach and all the parts of, you know, for hundreds or trying to really study Jewish music in depth, do you, as you describe yourself a little more conservative, do you then try to bring those old things back or do you try to rein in the new stuff or do you feel like that's, or do you feel much more like it's day to day, week to week? You don't have to follow a philosophy about how much this needs to stick to the text and the original intent. There's so much room for growth. Yeah, um, I think part of not being a clergy person and not being a community leader um, gives me a lot more liberty because I kind of just come in, I offer my offerings, and then I get to leave. Um, Right. uh, If I was serving a community um, on a weekly, daily basis, um, I probably would have a different set of opinions about it. But because that's not necessarily why I'm brought in, I'm not brought into to keep things the same, I'm brought in to try to try new things. Um, and like, so I, I think there's a step, if my role was different, I probably would maybe, I'm, I might be more conservative, I would say, in terms of my approach, because the, the day-to-day experience is a lot different than coming in for one night or one weekend and then offering something. How does in the time, I feel like you've had um, experimental things. I mean, uh, before we started this podcast, we were talking about a podcast you did for a period of time. Um, I I think you've done more, um, I don't know what to call it, like quicker music. So sort of like I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make some music and I'm going to try to share it as quickly as I can during COVID when we all had this time and musicians couldn't travel. Um, Where are are you right now in your your musical travels? Do you feel like you're off in in... are you are you studying Jewish stuff? Are you kind of looking to contemporary music? And what kind of stuff are you making right now? Um, I'm not I'm not specifically studying Jewish stuff at the moment. Um, I am. I think COVID was a big kind of a step pull. It pulled me back a bit from like the trajectory that I had been on. I was like going full steam for several years. I would say five years of like really touring around and traveling to different communities. Uh, and then like 2020 hit and I was grounded for, uh, for a while. And I think that, um, it forced me to kind of reflect on like, what do I want to create for myself? Um, and so I started, um, just, I, I got some different pieces of a, of a music equipment, like a, a looper, which is like, allows me to loop my voice over itself. Uh, and I started experimenting more with, um, different music production elements on my computer. Um, and, I, I, I kind of started to like do a daily, a daily writing practice where I would kind of meditate, then I would breathe, and then I would start to sing and move my body and dance and then create a beat. And then I would let that beat move into a piece of music. And then I would yeah. just kind of start to explore. And then every single day I was just writing and writing and writing these new ideas. Um, they weren't actually like, for anything I, I had beforehand I, I had been writing for a purpose like oh I have to, I'm writing this piece of music because I know it's going to serve this community in this way and for it was like the first time that I had given myself permission to just write for the fun of writing for a while 
uh, and for and it, and I realized that there was like this connection between my creativity and my spirituality that like through breath and through movement through dance like that led to a, like a vocal expression that led to ideas and like let like it just made me want to keep going and expressing 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 um, and so I actually wound up releasing an album uh, last summer. Um, of all of, of a lot of these like um, vocal expressions that I had mm-hmm. I had created, um, they were basically just. Did you re-record them or keep the originals? So um, a little bit of both. Um, I, I kind of want, once I realized what uh, once I realized oh there's a there's a project here there's something going on here, then I decided to like say then I realized what what the scope of the project was and I started to work and kind of to work to complete the album. Um, and so, but what they started was, was just like, you know, just ideas laying, layering on top of ideas. And I realized what was, what I was doing was even though I play piano and guitar and and I can do a lot of stuff on the computer, I was realizing that like my voice was the most like unique expression of myself. Um, and so all of the ideas, I was singing them into the microphone and recording them and singing other things on top of them. And I was singing the drum parts and singing the bass lines and singing the the horn parts and the guitar parts and singing all these different parts. And I was like, oh, well, what if the whole album was just vocal, like me just using my voice for all of the parts? And <clears throat> And so then once I realized, okay, that's a cool idea to just have everything be my voice, then I started kind of creating these these uh, these pieces of music that were that were kind of like dance songs, but just for for my voice. Um, and so I called the album Move M O V E, which is like obviously indicative of like movement, but also M O V E was a an acronym for my own voice experiment. And so ah. I <laughs> uh, and so I was really um, excited by the idea of just like i'm just going to use my voice and whatever ideas come out i'm going to follow them and 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 create from that because when i don't know if you know you play guitar and you know if you're a piano pianist or guitar player you kind of your hands kind of tend to go to the same places and your and your fingers tend to to like go to the the chord positions that you're used to um and it's hard to like get something completely original because you're just, you get stuck into whatever, whatever ability level you're at with your hands. Um, And so um, it was nice and freeing to like not have any instruments at all and just use the ideas that were coming out of my mouth. Um, And like it was, it felt very organic and it felt like, you know, stuff that I could move to. And and it was like, it felt like a nice um, step forward for my create, my creative practice. So that was really, so that was for your own personal creative practice. Do, was it as somebody who gets paid to make art? So when you got this chance to, well, I'm not going to go do the normal thing I do to, to make a buck. So now I'm going to, Oh, there's this creative practice. Did you feel that yearning the drive to, I got to make this pay. I got to figure out how to turn this into a thing or did you really want to kind of hold it as a bubble and say, no, no, this is going to be different. This is going to be just for me. Um, a little bit of both. I mean, it was like a, just a daily creative practice for me. Um, and for a while that was like, I would just do it just for the fun of doing it because it felt good in my body. I felt good afterward. It really genuinely started like I, it, it didn't start as, um, 
like the project itself. I, I was using that as just like a way to get into a creative headspace so that so then, then I could start writing things, right? But I didn't realize that like that was actually going to be the thing. Um, and so, um, yeah, but obviously like there's music and then there's music business, right? There's, right. there's the, so the business of it is, is complicated. It was, it was trying to figure out how to get people to listen to a thing, you know, especially when you're everything's streaming for free and, and you have like basically an ocean of music and you dr- you put something out and it basically is just like a drop in the ocean of, of everything right. else that's out there. Um, and so it's, it's hard to, to get people to listen to a thing. Um, and I also found it challenging. Um, I tried to do some performances of the music, but it was very, I found it like the tech technically very challenging to, to, to perform it in a convincing way. Cause like, there's one thing where you just grab a guitar, I'm going to play some chords and sing the song. It's a lot harder when you have to build all of the pieces yourself with, with your voice and have it layered over itself. And there's a lot of like mapping out that has to happen. And, um, it was, I found myself like buried in my computer as opposed to being able to actually interact with people, which is to me, like, I love when I'm performing, I want to be able to be interactive. And I felt my, I was like too concerned about like the different buttons I had to push. And, uh, it was like, it was like being like an old time, like, you know, telephone operator where you have to like plug this and unplug this and push this button and everything had to happen at the right time. It was, it was, so it was a little complicated to, to find a way to perform it effectively. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, am not done with that project. That was, I put it on pause, but I, I still, I still found it very, um, there's something there that I'm, that I'm still going to pursue for sure. So given the fact that you could have just gone into regular music or you could have just gone into theater, um, in the secular world, is it is it the early modeling and the early opportunities of Jewish music and kind of these role models along the way that you wanted to model yourself after and they were making Jewish music? Did you ever at any point along the line want to be not, I want to go do the art, not Jewish art? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's always been in the background for me. Um, I still struggle with that in a lot of ways. Um, but I... Um, and, and I've come to a point where I realized I can do both and it, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive um, where I can serve the Jewish community. And I have for the past 20 years, you know, been serving the Jewish community and that's, and I'm so grateful for, for the opportunities that I'm, I'm able to serve in that way. Um, and also, you know, if something comes out of me that doesn't feel like it's going to fit so neatly into that community, I can, I can release that and do whatever I would want to do in that way. Um, as well. So I don't feel necessarily bound, um, so strictly bound anymore. Um, I think, I think maybe I was putting that on myself a few years ago that, okay, I'm a Jewish music artist and that means I have to do X, Y, or Z thing. I feel a little less bound to that these days. Um, I'm, I'm actually doing a couple new things. I'm, I am, I'm in an off Broadway play right now, like a, like a children's musical. Uh, Oh yeah. I think I saw, I think you shared some pictures of that. Yeah. yeah. It looks cool. Uh, and so that was that was like a fun little divergent um, activity. It's no longer running, but it's uh, it just um, but it was fun to do it in the month of December. December, and um, and I'm also working with some different people on on writing theater, uh, as, and so hopefully I'll be able to write a show this year and then be able to perform it and present it in a, uh, at some point maybe the next year, um, and that to me. 
I've written a lot of liturgy over the years. So to me, writing theater is a nice kind of next step where I it, I can write um, things in English and I can write things from from a different vantage point that might still ultimately serve um, the Jewish community, um, or but it also can kind of allow it to expand out out of the Jewish community as well. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've written over the last twenty years, like it it serves the Jewish community well, but it doesn't have much place outside of the Jewish community. Um, and I think that it's nice to be able to to have something that I'm working on that has the potential to to reach other other listeners. So this probably doesn't have a pat answer, but I'm wondering, you gave such a beautiful trajectory of your relationship with music for years. Could you maybe just talk a little bit, you know, the other side, there's the musicianship of being a worship leader, and there's the musicianship of being a Jewish musician, and then there's the God liturgy part. And maybe if you could think about your evolution and your development in your relationship with God and if that ever hit or diverged from the music like I was doing music and God it God felt very far from it and this other time I was doing music and I just felt like I was in line with the divine yeah um I I think like most of us I struggle with God and struggle with the God concept um I I think that God is a human concept in a way like that like we we created our personification of what we want that thing that's larger than ourselves to be. So then even the name God, the word that we're using G-O-D is like a human construction for a, for a trying to explain a thing. Um, and so I don't necessarily feel like I need to like say, okay, this, this name of God or this, this Hebrew prayer is, is, magic or, or something. It's all just expressions of something that we're trying to explain that's larger than ourselves. And so I think religions are all beautiful in that attempt to try to explain um, that kind of universal power that feels, that feels larger than, than ourselves. Um, And I, so I am constantly in like, like in relationship with that entity whether or not I'm I'm aware of it or not, um, I do think that music is one of the best catalysts, though, for entering into that conversation with whatever that that entity is. Uh, and so, I think that's a big reason why religions and spiritual practices have used music um, to to help us connect. Because I think that something happens to our brains and our bodies when we uh, when we experience music. It puts us in alignment with something that we weren't in alignment with before. Um, and so like the same thing with like tuning into breath, like when we phase in with music, it's just, it, it puts us more in alignment. And I think that's, that's what I'm looking for is like, there's moments where I feel out of alignment and then moments when I feel in alignment or in on the same frequency as whatever that thing is, that, that field of energy that is, that, is the field of potential and the field of of um, of the manifestation and the field of of love and and higher consciousness? All of those things feel like it's a frequency that I got to tap into, and so music has been a wonderful vehicle to get me to connect to, to that thing. Um, and like the words, the Hebrew prayers again were written by by humans that were. But humans that were trying to to connect with that that entity, and so 
the 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 prayers the words of the prayers are like the musical notes it's just it's just kind of an expression of something but there's no reason why it can't it doesn't doesn't mean that hebrew prayers are somehow better than christian prayers or hindu prayers or it's all just people putting their intention through words because we're humans and we use language and that's how we express these things so it's it's like there's divinity, there could be divinity in all of it, as long as our intention is aligned with it somehow, and, we're, and that the, the goal is to try to be in alignment with that entity. Um, so that's how, maybe that's too lofty or long of an answer to your question, but it doesn't necessarily have to be Hebrew or Jewish for me to feel connected to it. I did want to ask, though, I feel like as people's religious journeys, if they start on a particular path or like my path, I was an atheist. My, I had no path um, and wasn't particularly interested in religion. The particularity of this path, when you sit long enough with it and then you listen to other people from other faiths, I think I come to very much in, in the same attitude you do, which is seems to be something universal about our experiences through history, throughout all these civilizations. There's something there that's. But then I, I'm so I struggle with the particular versus the universal. The universal sort of, if if there's no particular, the universal has no flavor. It's like if we're all singing one song, it's, it feels very boring. But then it's hard to be particular and then still be open minded to the universal, or vice versa. People, some people are very universally minded, and they find the particular very tribal and closed yeah. off. So how do you how do you deal with that? That's a that's a beautiful. You explained it beautifully. That is the conflict. Um, and I think in some ways, Judaism, Judaism's contribution to humanity, I think, is our, our ability to wrestle with um, con- contradictory uh, beliefs, like and that we're able to hold multiple, um, multiple opinions that seem to be contradictory from each other. Um, and, and so in that way, it's not about a religion telling you to believe this. And now we all believe this. And if you don't believe this, then you're not on our team. It's right. I think part of Jew, Jewishness is like the ability to doubt um, and the, and, and like, and putting that into the world, like the fact that like maybe millions of people might be going in this direction. I think Judaism's role is to be like, but maybe not, I don't know, but there's also this possibility, who knows? And like our whole Talmud, the whole Talmudic system is like taking the Torah and piecing it and and pulling it apart and saying, it says this, but does it really mean that? But could it it also could mean this? As opposed to the book that says, it says this, that means it means that, means you have to do this. I, I love the fact that it's like we're we're just the religion of questions, not necessarily the religion of answers. Um, and so that to me feels like freeing, but it also means it's not so surprising that that there's a lot of Jews have have moved towards Buddhism and mindfulness practices because there's also like a relatively open-minded, um, you know, perspective on on spirituality. And it doesn't surprise me that, you know, a lot of Jews go into to comedy and satire and so, you know, and 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 the arts and entertainment and writing and philosophy, because it's like all of these and like these things that ask big questions and and are comfortable with the the discomfort of those of of the ambiguity of whatever that is. 
thinking thinking along what people are trying to get out of music, um, I I have found you know you mentioned one of your one of your best earlier experiences you had was with those young kids K one two. There's something about doing music with kids where you can fully engage with them and everyone's fully engaged. Um, it's you know sometimes it can be boring because obviously when you're trying to teach Judaism to small children, it can't be as sophisticated as you're dealing with a thirty year old. How in your experience doing music and prayer, how is it? feel different doing music and prayer with children? And how does it feel when you're doing music and prayer for the entire family or for adults only? I'll say first that I, I think another reason why I backed away from being a clergy person is because yeah. I, I, I also think I had that same struggle with the universalistic versus the personal um, particularism um, in the sense that like, I, even when you said like teaching Judaism to children, I like, cause I wanted to raise this. Yeah. Yeah. Something like got like, 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 like a uh, triggered within me. I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to teach <laughs> Judaism to children. I want to just be around, ch- teach children something or just be with them. Cause to me, children are closer to source. And what I mean by that is like children are, f- are fewer years like it, separated from the like from where we all began, you know, and from where we're all going back to eventually, you know, like there's this beautiful t- uh, story that I heard on a podcast. Um, this uh, Anglican priest named Father Richard Rohr, he's telling a story about how this um, couple comes into his office and they just had a newborn baby. They had a three year old at home, and when they brought the newborn baby home, uh, they the the three year old said, "Can we? Can I have a few minutes alone with my new baby brother?" And the parents were like, "Not a little unsure. Like, yeah, I don't know. You're three years old. Maybe I shouldn't leave you alone." But they decided to like show her that they trusted her, uh, and so they, they kind of stood behind the door, let the door crack open a little bit, so they can listen into what she was saying. When the three year old realized that she was alone with her baby brother, she said, "Quick, tell me where did you come from?" And she said, and then but then what she said next always raises like the hairs on my arm. She's like, where did you come from? Cause I'm starting to forget. And when she said, I'm starting to forget, it's like, there's something there in that one statement. Um, that is so, it feels so true. It feels like there's, there was, we, there's like a, there's a, a knowing that we were all part of this oneness at one point, that our souls were all connected and that we were somehow deployed here on earth to be in this body, in this form. And then eventually that will, that will go back to the, the universal, the consciousness, whatever, whatever our soul goes back to. And so their children to me feel, it feels like they're closer to that, that place, that place of like awe and wonder and curiosity and excitement and joy and lightness and play, which is where so much of our creativity and our spirituality can be born from. Um, but over time, we get further and further separated from that source and life happens and sadness and grief and anger and all these things that, ca- that, that come up in our life um, that, that force us to be more separate. And I feel like the, the spiritual journey is trying to close that gap and get closer and closer to that thing um, in, this, in this lifetime. Um, so to me, being around children is like this beautiful reminder of that beauty and that, that oneness. Um, and then being with adults, it's like, okay, how can we remind ourselves that we're separated from that thing and how do we get closer to it? You know? 
Uh, that's funny, that trigger you had about that teaching Judaism, because it is what I wrestle with now, if I'm totally selfish and, you know, asking you questions about this. When it shifts from the little kids where we're doing Jewish songs and teaching them a little bit of Hebrew, do you like the song? Right, that's God. Okay, we're having God right and you like the song. And then when it gets older, like, oh, do you like God? Well, you need to know how to bow and you need to know what the words mean and you have to know what the theology is that the rabbis thought was important. Why is this prayer in this book? Because the rabbis thought it was important for this reason. You need to know that. And those things are so important, but they do. I completely agree. It starts feeling like there's some, like there's a fire and it's burning at the, in the young age and you feel like you're getting farther from the fire the more you fall into the theology and the and the trying to t- tell people what they're supposed to believe about God. A lot of religious education feels like you're telling little kids what they're supposed to believe about God. Yeah, and we we don't know the answer. That's the problem. Right. <laughs> and and so we go through the day to day and we're like, oh well, my my curriculum says I have to teach this, and this is what happens in this time of year, and this is what we have to do, and we have to teach them the language, we have to teach them. I think we actually we benefit from the fact that we're speaking a different language and we have, and so we're able to like, you know, just spend our time speaking about the mundane things because we're not very few of us are comfortable actually sitting down and having a theological conversation with a child. Very few of us are like that sure within ourselves of what we actually believe. And we're all, I think a little bit uncomfortable trying to like teach a kid about something that we're not so sure about. So it's a lot easier to like, okay, learn these prayers here, do these movements here. This is what this holiday means. This is what these words mean. Cause it's a lot easier to just say, to, to like kind of, keep it in the mundane than it is actually to talk about the real thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, it's again, another reason I don't, I, I never felt comfortable um, in, in with that aspect of the, of the job. And so, yeah, and, and right now, because I'm a touring artist and I don't really have to do that to, so to, to on a weekly basis, I, I, I can kind of stick with whatever I want to be talking about or teaching about. And, um, I, I don't, I don't f- have the same obligations that I had when I was a, a religious school music teacher. If you're out and doing music, you know, you mentioned this one formative time where there were 200 plus adults and kids all singing together and the power of that. I, I mean, that feels like power. That feels like assuredness faith, trust, certainty, that feels like just energy. We are pulling all in the same direction. And then the other side of that is what you're talking about before. Like one of the discomforts about teaching this stuff is, well, I don't know for sure. I mean, I can tell you what rabbi said, or I can tell you what this cantor said, or I can tell you what our rabbi says, but for sure, for sure. I don't know. You kind of got to figure that out for yourself. That's the thing is like, so my goal then is create as many opportunities like that like I had 20 years ago is like the 200 people singing together at their full with their, with their full openness and their full heart. My goal is create as many opportunities like that as possible so that people hold, people will remember that feeling, that feeling of connectedness, that feeling of being together and whether or not they decide to connect that to, Oh, I feel that now I feel more connected to my Judaism or I feel more connected to my community or I feel more connected to something bigger than myself. Or now I know how to listen to myself more deeply. That's really the goal. It's just like to have some sort of shift happen that, that teaches that, that allows them an opportunity to experience that feeling, whether it doesn't have to be Jewish or Christian or whatever the thing is. I just want to create more opportunities like that. 
that's that's my real purpose and my real goal. Um, and so I grew up with the father who's a cantor, going to 12 years of Jewish day school. I studied at Hebrew college. I studied at, you know, in Israel. I studied at Hadar for a year. I studied, I studied and studied and studied. So like, the language that is in me most fluidly is is Hebrew and and Jewish liturgy. And so that's the that's the stuff the the vehicle that I that that comes out of me most naturally. But it's not. I, I'm always cognizant of the fact that 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 is not the answer in and of itself. That's just one expression of the thing that we're all trying to figure out and 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 experience. What did your family think of in your evolution, in your career evolution? Were they all? What what do family and friends think about what you do, and how have they? How do they think about it back then? And how do they think about it now? Um, That's a big question. They probably have a lot of opinions, and you don't know all the opinions. Who knows? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that my my father um, is probably more like me now. Like where where he was, I think he probably also believed the same thing about like. We're just trying to create a beautiful moment and a beautiful experience for people. But in my earlier years, I was more conservative. I went to a conservative day school. I studied in more conservative institutions than my dad had even studied in. And so I was fighting back in my adolescence and post-adolescence, which now adolescence now bleeds way longer than it was. I, I was adolescent until yesterday, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's uh, basically like the struggles I had with my dad was more like I was feeling more conservative. I was moving to the right on, on like, um, and at least not, not with politics, but with regards to like Jewish tradition and, and Jewish right. liturgy and stuff. Um, but, uh, then I think the more I explore my, myself and I explore my spirituality, the more open-minded I think I become about it all, uh, and realize that like, and it doesn't matter what the words that we're saying are, so, so much. I mean, I think that you can have a separate conversation about tradition and continuity and, you know, we're, we're one link in a chain. And if we don't pass on those traditions, then, then we're, we're going to lose the thing. I think that's scarcity mindset. Ultimately, I think that's Jewish fear and Jewish constriction of like, if you don't do this, then we're going to lose it. It's all on you to hold the, to hold the Torah and to keep the tradition going. It'll adore Vador and never break the chain of our people. And we've been saying these words this way for 2000 years. And who are you to, ch to change them? That sort of mindset I'm, I'm becoming much less attached to. But it is so powerful in so many synagogues oh, yeah. and Jewish families. It's Jewish. a fear that pulls the tradition along. Exactly. But I don't want to be a, I don't want to be associated so much with a thing with a fear-based mentality. I I think that that's not the God that I pray to. You know, that's you know that's making God in our image as opposed to us being made in God's image, right? When we when we stay so attached to it has to be these words and it has to be this way. It has to be sung in this way and it has to be done because that's just what we do. That's a fear mindset. That's a fear-based like communication and that's that's clearly not what jesus was trying to express that's not what the bible was trying to express it's not like that's that's not the love-based communication that i i ascribe to yeah uh does that did you always feel comfortable working your way through the community bucking that is this something you've come to now or all your life you're a little off put by that 
Because yeah. I, it, so it manifests. So there's fears about a, a repeat anti-Semitism. Fears about a repeat of genocide, and there's also fears assimilation. There's fears of assimilation, intermarriage, and assimilation. These huge fears, and they never go away. You think they've forgotten, and a new year bubbles up, and it's assimilation or anti-Semitism. These things have bubbled up again. People are afraid again. I'm more with you that look, Judaism will survive because it's beautiful and wonderful, and it will survive, right? Or it won't, but it won't be because I ran around scared and tried to, as you said, I made sure all the, my chain was okay. Yeah. So we're good. Yeah. It's, it's fear. It's all fear. And we only have love and fear. That's the only two options we have. And it's a lot easier to choose fear. Um, fear is what most, you know, things that people are selling us, you know, uh, you need this because if you don't have this, then you're at a lack, you know, or uh, you need to do this or else the whole thing will crumble or whatever, whatever, whatever we, I know is that like time is time is an illusion. Like all of these beliefs are an illusion. The traditions are an illusion. It's all, it's all being made up constantly anew all the time it's being breathed through us today even the guys who live down the street i live in williamsburg brooklyn <laughs> which is like right down the street from the satmer community which is like the most you know the most right-wing jewish uh, that you can get um even those guys whether they believe it or not are are breathing their own modern 2023 uh versions of themselves into a tradition um and it's it's always evolving because we're always born anew in every moment. Um, so so yeah, if I if I have to choose, which luckily I, I get a chance to choose, um, I'm gonna always try to make the choice that's based off of a love based um, you know communication rather than a fear based. And so when I see the fear stuff popping up, the anti semitism stuff, it, it comes up with me too. It's not like it's not in me. I'm afraid right. of I'm afraid of the move the the movement of anti semitism that's happening right now. I'm afraid of you know so many th of losing traditions of of all. But at the same time, we have to trust that there is something bigger than us that is wanting to um, that's wanting us to awaken and to and to express our humanity more deeply and more compassionately. Um, and that can be done in, in a Jewish lens. It can be done in a Christian lens. It could be done. I don't, I mean, or, or none of it, you know, or we just all, if we can all just like take, take them all away and just be humans together and, and, and expressions of God's love through, through our, through just through, human to human interaction, then we don't need any of those things anymore. We can just be, uh, and then we'll be more like the animals. We'll be more like the, you know, the birds that are just <laughs> flying around. Like it's like, it's, they, they seem, when I see a squirrel running around, that squirrel seems pretty happy to me. It's just like going around doing its thing. It seems, seems like it's a pretty happy being. Um, we're the only ones who kind of really wrestle with it. Um, so kind of the return to the garden of Eden. sounds. Yeah, exactly. Before we ate the apple. Um, um, I want to ask you one last question. And just because I was talking to my mentor, she is working on um, <clears throat> helping people in corporations give better feedback because generally in corporations, people say um, feedback is fraught. Either people give negative feedback and it really hurts or they give sort of meaningless positive feedback. You're great. You're great. Um, and But people do say they want kind of effective feedback. As you think back in your music career, is there something that jumps to mind like one piece of it just 
feedback that jumps, not just a compliment that someone comes to you and gives you a hug and says, you are great, but they give you a piece of feedback that opens your eyes to something about your music or about yourself or about, wow, you're right, that is great. Or they corrected, you're right, that did need to be fixed. Is there a piece of feedback in your music career that jumps out at you? Yeah, I'll say on both sides of that. There's the constructive okay. criticism that I got and the uh, and then also like the positive feedback that I got in two separate occasions. Uh, on the constructive side, early on, um, I had, I, I did a service at a synagogue in New York and, um, and after the service, um, the rabbi wrote me this really long email, which was, it was mostly positive. It was, it was, it was mostly constructive. Um, but he, one of the things he said was, you know, we we asked you to to have the service be one hour long, and the, and you went over to about one hour and a half or one hour and forty five minutes, um, okay. and and I, you know, I was not at the, at the time. I was like, oh well, that's just because it was a fun evening and we were having a good time. Wasn't everyone having a good time? Um, and I realize now that what um, that like when you when you say something's going to be an hour. Um, it's respecting people. It's respecting people's time. It's respecting the the time and the commitment that people have come from their home to be here with the community for this this allotted time. And they have lives and they have you know community that they want to be with as well and plans and, and such. And you know how how do you if you, if you're given an hour to do a thing, then then find a way to make your that whatever experience that you're going to create, make it be that exact amount of time um, out of respect for the people who are there. And if you can't get to that level of like, aha, awe in that one hour, and like, that's, that's on you because you haven't hit your marks, not because the community hasn't responded in a certain way, you know? Right. And it's also a little selfish. It's self-indulgent when you keep going and going and going over your time that you're given, it's because you're getting fed by the attention or whatever it is that, 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 and you love being up there, but you can't speak for every single person in that room. And they, 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 you have to respect other people as well. So that was a really important piece of feedback. So now whatever I'm doing, I keep a clock on the Bima or on like on my music stand with me. And I, I see the time very big and bold on, on whenever I'm doing a concert, whenever I'm doing a, a service, I see the time and the clock. And so if I have to make adjustments and cut, I know where I am. And then if I'm, you know, if we're 10 minutes or five minutes before, someone might, the, the rabbi or someone might come up to me like, it's okay if you go over, it's fine. But I know that I'm going to be sticking to the, if they, if they have me for an hour, I'm doing an hour. Not because like, well, I said, well, I only said I'm doing an hour. And so I, you only, if you, if right, you, pay, you only me, pay me for 60 you only pay me for an hour. And so no, I'd be happy to go for two hours. I, I love the attention, but it's, right. it's not that it's, it's actually out of respect for the people who arrived um, and who are there. Um, and so that's the, that was a really important piece of feedback that I got early on. Um, and then another one that kind of seems like it wouldn't it wouldn't be constructive, but it was very um, very nice in a way. Uh, someone uh, last year he was a choir director uh, in San Francisco, and uh, and he was like the music director for that evening. We had a choir, we had a band. It was like this big service. Um, and afterwards, he said to me, um, "You've got a really healthy ego, uh, or a big a big healthy ego." And, and like, at first I was like, oh no, what does that, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Um, but what he meant by that and what I've under, and I, I, mean, I asked him and he explained, but what I've come to learn is that um, when you're in a position of leadership, 
if you're not leading with confidence and if you're not commanding in a way, then you're not necessarily doing your job, right? If you're a if you're if you're up there and you're kind of not sure what the next steps are, and you're asking what should I do what should I do and you, and you're not sure what you should ask the congregation to do and and hey maybe can you try singing this if you're not like strong and confident in your leadership you're not actually doing anybody a service right that's actually an expression of your ego being small being being weak not small but being being fragile um, be, because like you're you're not sure if you should say something or do something but so being able to stand and have a commanding presence but but then when he said but a healthy one is not command not taking command not like not demanding that people come along but having it healthy enough that you actually in some ways kind of lose your ego in that moment you know what your your purpose is you're serving a moment my purpose in this moment is to be a leader and this is what a leader does not because i'm taking it because my ego needs it but because this is what my role is in this moment and if i and so again if i'm not stepping into that role as a leader i'm not doing that job properly um so it feels like you're being egotistical it feels like you're taking control of everything but if you're able to do that where everyone up there with you knows where to go everyone every all the musicians and the choir and the band everyone knows what direction we're heading the congregation feels like you're leading them in a direction then we can all like with love get get risen even higher and like it raises the temperature of the entire room in a beautiful way um that doesn't have to be done by force that can be done in the most loving and compassionate way where everyone feels good following with someone that they they trust you know that they trust where that person wants to lead and it's not because that person is doing it because they need it for themselves but it's like this is what's right for the moment so that was a really important piece of feedback and it was nice when i finally understood what he meant i i, I thought it was nice <laughs>